What's up, everybody? Isaac and Jay here, and today we have uh, an incredible guest, uh, really one of the world's uh, leading New Testament scholars and theologians, uh, Scott McKnight. And we're going to be talking about some things that you may think you know or are pretty basic, or why does anyone even have to ask these questions? But we're talking about what, what do we mean when we use the word gospel and the word kingdom? And Scott's going to break it down. Some of it's going to be uh, maybe controversial. Some of you uh, might have a little bit of a reaction, but he's really trying to let the scriptures define what we mean by gospel and kingdom. For those of you who don't know, Scott is really, truly, like Isaac said, one of the most important voices in um, biblical scholarship today. So it was an absolute treat for us to be able to chat with him. So without further ado, here's our conversation with Scott McKnight. Hey, Scott, thanks so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. Glad to be with you. Yeah, it's great to have you. We want to begin with uh, a question that I think is is a question not enough people are asking because there are some unhealthy assumptions made about it. And the question is this, um, what is the gospel? <laughs> Which a lot of people would assume they know the answer, but you've written quite extensively about this. So I know that's a big question, but let me just begin with a big question. Um, in your understanding of the scriptures, what is the gospel? I can answer this negatively and positively, but I'll start with the positive. If you want the negative, I'll go there. <laughs> All right. The, the positive is this. The gospel is the announcement. So a gospel is an announcement, a proclamation, a declaration that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Lord, and that the Jesus who is the Messiah and the Lord is the one who lived and died and was buried and rose again, and that he has been exalted to the right hand of the Father, and he will return, and he will consummate the work of God in the world. So the gospel is an announcement about Jesus as Messiah and Lord, and it involves all those other elements as well. Talk a little bit about the negative, because you mentioned yeah. that. <laughs> so yeah. that, wa that was positive. And for most people, when they hear that, they would say, yeah, wow, that sounds great. But I would like to hear you talk a little bit about the negative in terms of how you've seen that big idea you just shared whittled down to something less than that. Yeah, and, and, and let me s start with the positive again, is that what I was saying is that the gospel is an announcement about Jesus. So the gospel is about Jesus. This is very important because it has a personal focus. It is, um, it is about a person, and, is about, and the central question of the gospel is, who is Jesus, or who is the world's true Lord? Those are central questions for the gospel. All right, the negative is this, is that, uh, a, an implication of the positive is that this Lord brings redemption for people who are connected to him because he is the, the world's true Lord. So salvation is the benefit or the implication of the gospel. The gospel is not, first of all, a message about salvation, but a message about Jesus. The negative then is this, is that we have reduced the gospel to 
how we get saved. And this is good news. Getting saved is good news. So I don't want to be critical of the implication, but it is a short form of the gospel. The good news, the, uh, the, uh, the negative is we've reduced it to how to get saved. In the process of reducing it, let's say that you have to trust in Jesus as the atoning sacrifice for your sins, and you can be forgiven of your sins. Uh, that's the that's the uh, a reduction of the gospel. When that happens, Jesus becomes a means of our own redemption, rather than the subject of the story itself. That that's I think this is absolutely critical. Now, I am not saying that the a shortened form of the gospel, which I call the Soterian gospel, uh, does not have an adequate Christology or does not adequately understand Jesus because it often does. Nor am I saying that the gospel that focuses on Jesus as the world's true Lord and Savior, that it doesn't have a, a message of salvation. It does. But it really matters where we begin, because in one, Jesus becomes a means, and frankly, this becomes a form of consumerism. This is what we get out of Jesus. Dallas Willard called it vampire theology. We, lo we love him for his blood. Um, then, uh, but if we, if we focus exclusively on what we get out of it, we turn Jesus into a means or an agent, and he's not the center of the story. So I, I believe that it's very important that we begin where the New Testament begins. If you look at 1 Corinthians 15, which is an explicit statement of what the gospel is, it tells us something about Jesus. It tells us that the Jesus who lived and died for us and was raised for us uh, brings salvation. So salvation is an implication of the gospel, but the gospel is more than a message about how to get saved. Yeah, so Jesus becomes the kind of gravitational center, um, whereas if you grew up in church, like, I mean, I'm going to oversimplify it, but the message that we always heard growing up, or if you, you ever went to like a, a big ministry event in a stadium, and not to necessarily anything, say anything overly critical about that, but you heard, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, and you're going to go to a place that's really, really bad. But here's the good news. If you accept Jesus, you have a ticket into heaven. Um, and again, I'm being oversimplistic, but really the message was Jesus is your ticket out of a bad place. Um, yeah. And anyone, especially if, you're at, if there's enough religious residue in the culture from a more dominant Christian era, anyone's worldview is still primarily accepting a belief in God and maybe the Bible as authoritative. So who doesn't accept, who doesn't raise their hand at that message? Yeah. Uh, everyone does. And then the statistics yeah. show, you know, vast majority of Americans think they're Christians and you kind of look around and you're going, I, I don't, I don't know. It sure doesn't feel like that. Mm. And so what you're getting at is Jesus is, is the center point. He becomes the gravitational pull. And there's obviously implications that are true, but we have to keep Jesus center. I, I agree totally. And I agree. I agree with what you said about what's going on about the gospel in many churches. And I don't think what you said is a caricature. I think that if you ask the ordinary evangelistic type pastor, what is the gospel? They're going to narrow it down just like that. God loves you. You're in an awful place. We call, we call this an anthropology. Uh, 
they create liminality. Uh, but what what they've done is they've said God loves you, but you're uh, but you're a sinner and you're in an awful place. But Jesus died for your sins, and if you accept Him, you won't be in that awful place. You'll be in the good place. And frankly, I I know that that's how many people understand the gospel because I've been listening to it most of my life, and I'm convinced. I, I've been convinced for many many years that it's wrong. It's an inadequate understanding of the gospel because it is a reduction of the gospel and it decentralizes Jesus. It centralizes us and what we get out of it. And it centralizes our problem. And, um, and I think that that's a, a reformulation that when we look at the New Testament, we just don't see it that way. That's so I'm with you. I'm with you. The other component that you bring out uh, in in a book that uh, we highly recommend, King Jesus Gospel. I'm a big. I had a. I, I'm a pastor, and we 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 went through it as a staff a few years ago. I felt it was that important. Um, and when really? you say the word Messiah in the book, you draw draw out the fact that Messiah has has a rich tradition and history. And ultimately, the name of the book is about Jesus being King. Um, yes. Talk about that being central as well, and maybe how you know at least with in American culture, we're a hyper-individualistic culture. We don't like the idea of kings. And so it, it might not be coincidental that we emphasize personal relationship with Jesus, but don't talk much about kingship. Yes. Uh, th- this, is a, this is a little bit complex. We, d- we don't live in a world in the United States of needing a king so that it becomes an immediate resonance with us. But we do live in a world of of increasing demands of lordship in our life. And the, uh, I, I, often, I often put it this way, uh, that in, in the Bible, the, the, message of Je- uh, the message of the gospel is that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Lord. And that is supposed to be a solution to a narrative looking for that as its solution. So if you read the Bible right, you will be looking for a Lord. You'll be looking for Messiah. And I am convinced that, uh, that we have learned to read the Old Testament in ways that do not focus on that question. So that we need to learn to read the Bible in such a way that the answer to the questions that we are asking of the Old Testament are the answers that the New Testament gives. And if the New Testament gives the answer that Jesus is the world's one true Lord, he is the Messiah, then we need to read the Old Testament in such a way that it prompts that question, who is the world's true Lord? Now, this is where uh, idolatry in the Old Testament is is a very, very important theme. And frankly, I think that we don't see this in the Old Testament as much as we ought to because we're not looking for it and we don't have ears to hear it and eyes to see it. But if we look right now at the United States, and I'm going to jump ahead because I think this is where I see this. Right now in the United States, we have become the United States as a whole. Look at social media, look at Facebook, look at Twitter. Look at the anxiety on people's faces, and everybody wants to talk about Donald Trump. And they think that the solution to Donald Trump is to get rid of him. Now, I don't mean that everybody. It's about 50%, isn't it? All right. But the election, 
the election of the United in the United States is driving people's interests. And the news media is driving our interest in elections. And every two years now, we've got these elections coming for senators, House of Representatives. We get these elections for presidents, and they uh, they seem to last more, uh, almost two years now, a year and a half. And it is driving Americans to believe that the solution to our problems in the United States are who is going to be elected next. This is pure idolatry. This is, this is a belief that our answers are to be found in Washington, D.C. and in the electoral process and the election and who the next candidate is. So we are vesting our candidates with messianic significance. All right, this is where we are. And the answer in the Bible is Trump is not the Messiah. Hillary Clinton is not the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. Relax. He's been raised from the dead, and he's coming again. So something like that. I do wonder if a part of that, as we consider our own political system, because as Isaac mentioned, the idea of King, one, seems so foreign, and two, it seems so <laughs> off-putting in, in our world here in America, especially because of our in many ways because of our po political system, but also because of our the cultural climate, which is hyper-individualistic. I'm curious to know what you think about this, Scott, that even when we think about electing officials who upon whom we, we place almost a messianic weight, uh, knowingly or subtly, um, there is a sense that we have some semblance of control. So I go to the voting booth and I vote and I raise my voice and I can decide who that messianic figure that I think is going to change the world for the better um, is going to be for the next four years or whatever it is. When the biblical story sort of turns that on its head, and this is a word that, that um, no one really likes, it's not a fun word at all, but the idea of depravity and a self-recognition or acknowledgement of our inability as human beings to create the sort of world that we're all hungry for, a good world, and that at the beginning of the story, God is the one who creates that world and invites us into partnership in that world with him. Um, can you talk a little bit about, a little bit more about the, the struggle for us as Christians today, particularly in America, to really understand what we mean and what the Bible means when it tells us that Jesus is king um, in light of our hyper-individualism and our desire to control um, our, our political climate and uh, our belief, our misbelief, that uh, we can actually create the sort of good new world that, that we're all longing for? Well, there's a lot going on there, Jay. Um, there's a lot you, you've put together. Um, let, me, let me say this, that... There is, there is individualism, there's personalism, there's the significance of the individual. So, so there is, there's right now a little bit of a tendency in biblical scholarship to blast away, theological scholarship, to blast away at individualism in the United States. And I don't think there's anything quite as individualistic as Romans chapter 7 when Paul is using the word I. Or in Galatians chapter 2, when Paul is using the word I. Or when Paul is put on trial and he tells his personal story. 
So I, I don't want to call that individualism, but that's an individual consciousness. So it's personal. So I don't want to devalue the importance of the personal. But what happened in modernity was a centralization of identity in the individual disconnected from tradition. And uh, there's a lot that's gone on in, in studies of modernity and the Enlightenment and all this stuff. It, and it's, it's, it's pretty shrewd and it's pretty important stuff, is that we have relocated the sense of meaning to ourselves and we've disconnected ourselves from tradition. So people didn't get their choice of president. I, I saw this happen with Donald Trump and I've never seen it quite like this. And maybe it was because the previous president was there for eight years and that meant eight years ago, this wasn't quite as strong a theme in the American social culture. And that was that when Trump was elected, people said, he's not my president. I don't remember uh, the, the outcry being as severe when, when, when Barack Obama was, was elected. I don't remember saying, well, he's not my president. Uh, it was probably there, but not as strong. And uh, uh, so I've seen this and I keep thinking, you know, you're an American and when the people speaks, that's who speaks. And we didn't get uh, the some people didn't get the president they wanted. So they wanted to change the rules so they could get their president. Well, the Electoral College has a long history. But the point that I would want to emphasize here is not, you know, I don't really want to talk about politics all the time. It, the, the point I want to make is there was this there's this sense now that the majority, if it doesn't speak what I want, I'm not going to participate in it. I'm not a part of it. That is a change of consciousness. Whereas uh, 50 years ago, uh, when I was growing up, there was this sense that if the if the people voted for uh, John F. Kennedy, even though he was a Roman Catholic, uh, well, then we've got then he's our president now, and we will uh, we will be respectful of the, who the president is. So let's just use this as an illustration of individualism that has has really gotten stronger in the world today. And some of that individualism is very healthy sense of uh, self-consciousness and identity and all these things are important. But um, in the pages of the Bible, we don't find this radical individualism. Rather, we find a much stronger sense that God is working in the people of God and that we are a part of the people of God and therefore as individuals— we have an identity as part of the people of God. And this big people of God in the New Testament is the body of Christ. So we identify with Jesus himself, and that gives us our identity. So, and I don't know if I'm answering all your questions here, uh, but uh, this whole sense of individualism and corporateness uh, is a complex topic, and it has become acute in the United States. Uh, only because we have taken an important element of life, our individual consciousness before God, the accountability that each of us has before God, our responsibility before God, and we've raised it almost to the point of an idolatry that I decide 
what is right about everything, and I have total disrespect for the tradition unless it agrees with me. This is profoundly unwise and contrary to biblical themes. There's a whole other world that the average American may not even be aware of, but there's been points in history in many places in the world today that are such the opposite extreme, they would just sound bizarre to us. So there's cases in history where like the Russian king becomes a Christian and guess what everyone does the next day? We all go get baptized. Even if you don't, hey son, I know you don't believe, go get baptized, son, the the king's a Christian now. And there's yeah. that corporate identity, and not that that's the right way or the solution of the way forward, but there's just this these extremes, and we, we exist in an extreme. And that's probably a great transition, what you're talking about, this individualism, into another topic that you've written extensively on is the idea of a kingdom. Because right now, there is a trend, especially among younger Christians, to try and do the Christian thing or the Jesus thing or a spirituality with Jesus divorced from the people of God, from the church. And they kind of want to do this kind of kingdom stuff and be into good things like justice issues, like taking care of the needy. And that is exactly the word they use. Yeah. It's kingdom work. It's kingdom, kingdom stuff. Yeah. yeah. And so uh, if for the listeners, maybe you may not be aware of the, the huge issue, but there's this massive kind of very hard to articulate. You can't even point necessarily to the tribes or where it's coming from, but it's definitely in the culture to try and do justice and good things in the world outside of the church and somehow think that you're still doing kingdom work, but it's divorced from the church. Now, Scott, you have a lot to say on that, and I'm sure you can kind of navigate us, but maybe you can articulate that that problem better than I did and, and kind of help us move forward in that and bring balance back to that equation? There, there is a shift, and I watched this happen. So let me tell a little bit of my own personal story. I grew up in the 1960s, largely, and it wasn't what the TV thinks it was. It wasn't all hippies. People were wearing uh, big black frame glasses and short hair and coats and ties to church and dresses and hats to church. So it wasn't all California, West Coast, beach boy hippies. uh, That didn't happen until later. But um, at the time when I grew up, evangelical fundamentalist type Christians were wary about social action. They were wary about activism in the political sector. And they were deeply concerned about someone who would be committed to social justice Uh, that wasn't connected to the church. In the 1980s, American evangelicalism became convinced that it, it had an important role to play in the public sector of politics. And so we had Jerry Falwell and James Dobson and James Kennedy suddenly advocating, and they were led in some ways by Francis Schaeffer's uh, late uh, work in his life, They were led to believe that if they became more activists, they could save the nation and bring the nation back to God. And suddenly, American evangelicals became a political force. That was the 80s. In the 2000s, American evangelicals had become so convinced of their significance in the electoral politics and so convinced of the contribution they could make in the world that an increasing number of evangelicals became 
largely social justice act activists and to justify or legitimate or to explain what they were doing they began to call what they were doing in the public sector kingdom work and i would like to jump in right there kingdom work for this group of people is whenever uh, it becomes confused it becomes ambiguous whenever good people do good things in the public realm, for the common good, they are doing kingdom work. And kingdom work, in that definition and that understanding, and I am convinced that this is the common way people use the word kingdom, and I know it's right, because every time I talk about it, people get irritated with me, because that's the way they're using the terms. So I know, and hardly any of them are using it the way I use it, so therefore I know that my view is different than theirs. And I call this group, I call this theory of the kingdom, skinny jeans kingdom theory. <laughs> and, and I don't mean to be offensive to the young generation because older people shouldn't be wearing skinny jeans. <laughs> but I, what, I, what I mean is that this has really captured the young generation and many, um, in many good ways. But at the same time, kingdom has become divorced from church. Kingdom has become divorced from the necessity of salvation. Kingdom has become divorced from salvation. Kingdom has become divorced even from Jesus. So, for instance, a question that I like to ask is this. Did, did Mahatma Gandhi do kingdom work? If the answer to that question is yes, then you don't have to be a Christian you don't have to be redeemed. You don't have to be in the church, and you can be doing kingdom work. I believe that the vast majority of young evangelicals and progressive evangelicals would say yes to that question. The result of that is kingdom is no longer what it means in the New Testament. It's no longer what Jesus meant. It has taken on a life of its own. I like what they're doing very much. I love that people care about justice. I love that people care about the poor. I love that people want to make a difference in the world. I, who, who could be against that? But by calling it kingdom, here's what's happened, is an increasing number of Christians in the United States now think the primary activity uh, for kingdom work is to get involved in the public sector and do good things that have nothing to do with the church. That is an issue, and I call it skinny jeans kingdom theory, and I'm, I'm convinced it has nothing to do with what the New Testament means by the word kingdom. So I'll back off and say what I think the New Testament teaches about kingdom, uh, unless you have questions. Yeah, I, I do want to jump in with one question before, but I would also like to hear you talk specifically about what you think the New Testament says. So, But right before that, I do want to ask a question. There are lots of people listening to this who maybe they're, they're thinking to themselves, okay, I'm... Um, you know, I'm a school teacher and I'm a follower of Jesus and I've been told that my role as a school teacher in, let's say, a public school um, in caring for these students and providing a fair education opportunity for them and being a part of their lives in a loving, generous way, I've been told that I am doing kingdom work. But now, Scott, you're telling me that Good work, void of a direct connection to the local church, isn't kingdom work in the sense that the Bible understands and presents 
kingdom, but I'm still a public school teacher, and I would like to somehow integrate my following of Jesus in a way that the work I do is kingdom work. Um, is that possible? If someone were to ask you that question, and I guess this is more of a practical question, how then does that, you know, our, our good endeavors in the world, um, how do we connect that in a responsible, robust, biblical way so that it can become truly kingdom work, where it is somehow connected um, to the life of the, the community of God's people? Okay, the, fr- the first thing I would say is, until about 1990, we got along very, very well without ever calling this stuff kingdom work. Now, maybe it was used that way in some segments of the social gospel. So let, let's just admit this, that we got along perfectly fine when people, when normal Christians had normal jobs, like my father, who was a public school teacher, and my grandfather, who was a coal miner in southern Illinois. Uh, they, they did very well, and they saw themselves as Christians in their workplace, and they just didn't need the legitimating apparatus to say they were doing kingdom work to give it ultimate value, okay? So let's just say that the standard hit, uh, approach has been uh, that we, we've always called these things vocations. Uh, we, we've called them jobs. And in the pages of the Bible, a job— this is, this is a really important theme, and it's very difficult for wealthy, privileged Americans to understand this. And that is, in the Bible, work, labor, was for the purpose of producing food and providing for the family. People didn't try to find vocations that gave them ultimate meaning and joy in life because they knew they were making a difference. All right, my grandpa never knew what this was about. My grandpa was a coal miner and he worked long hours, walking a long ways, deep into the earth, two and three miles below the top where he was an electrician in the coal mine. He never wondered if what he was doing was meaningful, and he never, I don't think, would have ever called what he was doing was kingdom work, but he was doing what God had called him to do to provide for his family. In the pages of the Bible, work is labor, it's hard on the body, and its purpose is to provide food. All right, so let's just start with that. The second thing that I would say is that in the New Testament already, we have Uh, a conversation or we have language for what people do who are followers of Jesus when they do things for the common good. And it's called good works. Jesus uses this in Matthew 5, 16, or 15 and 16. They will see your good works and glorify your Father who is in the heaven when you are a light in the world and salt in the earth. And 1 Peter uses this six or seven times. He talks about Christians who are doing good. And the language he uses, the Greek word is agatha poiao, and this is a word that means something like this, doing good. Uh, it, is, it, is, it is good works, and it is in the public sector. This language is used routinely for public benevolence. 
So building roads, building monuments, building a, uh, a home, uh, providing food for your local neighborhood, uh, whatever it takes, that is good works. And, and they never call that stuff kingdom. That is good works. And Christians have always been involved in doing good works in the public sector. Now, why, why would I be so concerned about saying, okay, now that's good works, and, but let's not call it kingdom, because I'm, I'm constantly approached by people. I do this, I do this. Is that kingdom work? You know, they want it to be called kingdom work because they know kingdom is good. And they think good work is just not quite, that's just not quite as snazzy and fancy and charismatic enough of a term. All right. Kingdom. All right. All right. Here we go. In the Bible, <laughs> the word kingdom has five elements to it. All right, but I'll start with, before I get to the first one, here's a basic definition of kingdom. In the ancient world, the Greek word basileia, the Hebrew word malkut, always meant this. It is a people who are governed by a king. That's what a kingdom is. You, you, okay, so it is a people governed by a king. Now, there are five elements. To have a kingdom, you have to have a king. In the pages of the Bible... God is the king, Jesus is the king, and in the history of Israel, they had kings. Those are king. You've got to have a king to have a kingdom. Secondly, for a kingdom to exist, you have to have a king who is ruling. Kings who don't rule are called bloggers. <laughs> they have websites and Twitter feeds and Instagrams, and they utter declarations about everything but they don't have there it's not a king a king a king rules and in the pages of the bible this king rules by ransoming redeeming and saving people for himself and then leading them guiding them governing them lording it over them now in the in the true sense he becomes their lord so a kingdom is a king who rules by way of salvation and governance, and a kingdom is a king who rules, and the third element is a people. In the pages of the Bible, there are two terms, Israel and the church. Uh, the kingdom, uh, a kingdom is a people governed by a king. There is no kingdom if there's not a people who are governed by that king. So, you don't have kings functioning as kings if the nation is in exile. So in the pages of the Bible, then, we have a king who rules, he saves, and he governs a people. The people in the New Testament is the church. The only kingdom that exists in the New Testament is the church. And this king rules the people by salvation and governing by giving them a law. In the Old Testament, it's called the law. In the New Testament, it's the teachings of Jesus. In the, uh, and we can reduce it in the Apostle Paul to life in the Spirit. So you have a king who rules a people by giving them, let's say, instructions. And in the, in the Old Testament especially, there has to be a land. A king who rules a people without a land is a disappearing act because you have to have an embodied reality where you're actually uh, ruling these people. 
So uh, land, and, and anyone who reads the Old Testament knows that Haaretz, the land, is absolutely important. In the New Testament, the land promise is fulfilled in the embodied reality called the church, but this church is going out into the diaspora or throughout the whole world, taking up sacred space in this play in these places to witness to the gospel about Jesus Christ. So here's a king. Here's the kingdom as the as the Bible teaches it. It is a people governed by King Jesus, who have been saved by him, who live under him by listening to his teachings and living in the spirit and who embody that reality in the church of, of a local community as they witness to who God is. Therefore, doing works in the public sector is not kingdom work because it's not connected to that king by way of redemption and it is not connected to the church. Any kingdom theology that diminishes the significance of the church evacuates the meaning of the word kingdom in the Bible. So there is no kingdom work apart from the church. Wow. Okay. Yeah, and to the average, you know, to the average listener, especially in my demographic, that's like shocking and startling. I mean, just just the presuppositions that we built our individual theology upon is just like counter to everything. But this is this is normal. I mean, this is the importance of the the church and the centrality of the bride of Christ is everywhere in Scripture, um, and it's just unfortunate because historically, at least in the last, I would say, fifty years of American Christianity, and Scott, you could correct me if this is an oversimplification, but we really have people falling into two two camps. We have the traditional kind of fundamentalist camp that was all about preaching the gospel and who cares about good works, and their gospel, and to use your words, would be a soterian gospel. It was very much get people saved, have them say a prayer, raise their hand, and show the elders uh, how many people got saved at the revival. Except that, except that in fundamentalism, the, the, uh, they were very serious about holiness and living a devoted life and being evangelistic. They weren't as concerned politically, as activistically as they are now. Mm, yeah. But the evidence is now pretty clear that, uh, that the fundamentalists were never completely segregated from society and voting and activism. It just wasn't uh, as dominant a theme as it became uh, in the 80s. So, okay. Yeah, so you have that You have that yeah. side, and then on the other end, the extreme of, and I would say this is of the, you know, 35 and under crowd, certainly the 25 and under crowd is the, you know, we just do do kingdom work as, as we define it, but there is this beautiful, healthy balance in, in centering on Jesus, his work, what we started with, the gospel. Jesus is central, yeah. and his yeah. people are central to his ultimate mission. Um, right, right. And unfortunately, it's like everything. It seems like we always fall to two extremes, but Scripture would be, be calling us to this. I, I don't even want to use the balance because it's not a balance. It's a, it's a gravitational pull that pulls you to the person and work of Jesus and the centrality of the church in accomplishing his mission. Because that is his work. Mm. That is his work. The work of God in the world is through and in the church, and he's drawing people out of the world into the church. And uh, both of you, uh, you maybe are aware that I talk about this, is I think that we have lost um, a, a, a sense of what the Bible means by world. So, for instance, 
Andy Crouch writes this wonderful book called Culture Making, and it has no theology of the world. What happened? Here's what happened. Fundamentalists really knew what worldliness meant, and they avoided the world, and they found a harbor in the church. In the 1980s and 90s, American evangelicals uh, divorced themselves from the populist fundamentalist movement, and they became sophisticated and elitist, and they wanted to make a difference in the world, and so they started talking about culture. Billy Graham talked about the world. John Stott talked about culture. And the result of is today we are so obsessed with culture that we don't have a theology of the world. We need a book on the theology of worldliness. Worldliness is a recognition that the fallen world around us is in rebellion against God and in need of redemption. And our responsibility is not to make the world a better place, but to save people from the world and draw them into redemption in Christ and the body of Christ. And through that body of Christ to influence society in a good direction. But if the, if the society doesn't go in that direction, it won't matter to us because our responsibility is to Jesus as Lord and to be faithful to him. And we will be faithful to him by living out this kingdom reality in the context of a fellowship of the church, rather than trying to make the world of the United States a better place. And this is this gets to a practical question that maybe ties everything together. In the King Jesus Gospel, there you talk about how the system. Speaking of of how we preach the gospel, the kind of soterian version of it, um, and just for our listeners, soteria is the Greek word for salvation. So that by saying it's a soterian gospel, we're saying it's super focused on the individual going to heaven and not going to hell. Um, but you talk about how the systems we've created um, are perfectly designed to give us the results that are coming out. And then you go on to talk about um, discipleship. So maybe maybe t- trying to tie all these pieces together, um, if you could talk on how when we get the gospel right, we realize that Jesus is Lord and King, and that has behavioral implications, and it pushes us not just to accepting Jesus so we get to go somewhere when we die, but it produces fruit a life of following Jesus and discipleship, and maybe try to connect all these pieces together for our listeners. Uh, that's a very difficult task, but uh, you got you can do it. <laughs> I'm a seminary professor. I'm supposed to be able to do this. Okay. Um, let us say that, you know, I, uh, there's, there's always this, there's this um, in, incurable temptation that we have and tendency to flip from one thing to another. So, uh, redemption uh, and individual people being saved is very important. Uh, I don't want to minimize that. But if the primary gospel is you are a sinner and you need to get saved, and if you accept Jesus as your Savior, you will be saved, in fundamentalist they would say uh, that you would then become a holy person. That's a good thing. Uh, in the so in the more mainline framework, they'd say you become a loving person, and that's a good thing. But the individualistic types that you are talking about here, Isaac, focuses then that when you die, you will go to heaven. All right. So the the primary response is to trust in Jesus, so that the mechanism can be unleashed in your life for you to go to heaven when you die and to be saved. The fundamental uh, term for faith has recently taken on a really clever angle, 
by Matthew Bates, who's a professor at Quincy University here in the state of Illinois. And he, he, he titled his book provocatively during the year of the Reformation, Salvation by Allegiance Alone. And when we frame faith as allegiance, I used to always use the word surrender. And I'm a big fan of Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Costly Grace. So uh, if we see that the gospel is about Jesus and that he is the king and he is the Lord, the proper response is not simply to believe what he says or even simply to believe in him, but to surrender ourselves to him in allegiance to him as our Lord and Savior and to follow him and to join the body of Christ that he has formed around him of people who are also in allegiance to him and have sworn their allegiance. All of a sudden now, the framework changes, and what we're calling people to do is to give themselves to Jesus, to live for Jesus, and to live that life out in the context of the body of Christ, the church, as we surrender ourselves together for the good of the gospel in our world. So that's, that's uh, I think that's how I try to put it together in, uh, in four minutes. Yeah, that's really powerful. Um, as we sort of wind down, I, I'd love to hear a, a practical pastoral challenge for, especially for those who are listening. We have a lot of folks who listen to the podcast who are leaders in the church, um, and in particular, many who are serving new generations and their passion is to reach new younger generations and evoke in them a fresh new understanding of the Jesus story and what it means that Jesus is our King. Um, at the beginning of uh, the King Jesus gospel, your good friend um, N.T. Wright uh, wrote one of the forwards for you, and he has this line. He says that part of the genius of genuine Christianity is that each new generation has to think it through afresh. And Scott, you're one of the major voices who's really provoking and challenging the church um, globally and certainly here in America to do that, to think it afresh. So if you can say a few words to Christian leaders today, and in particular those who are interested in reaching new generations, um, and give them some practical um things, as well as some challenge uh, to how they might invite new generations to think it afresh, uh, what would you say? Okay, two things. The first thing is, I would say, um, get people to ask this central question, who is Jesus? I think we need to ask that question more. Who do you think Jesus is? Read the pages of the Bible. Read the Gospels. Well, just pick one Gospel, John, Mark, Matthew, Luke. Pick one of them. And constantly ask this question, who is Jesus? Who does he think he is? Who did he think John was? Who did he think the Pharisees were? Who did, See, all these identity questions, who was Jesus? Because as he talks about others, he is also talking about himself. And get people to think of Christianity in terms of the question of the identity of Jesus. That's number one. The number, the number two is watch the ministry of Paul throughout the Roman Empire as he moves from Jerusalem across what we uh, today call Turkey into Greece and then eventually 
back to Jerusalem and then to Rome. Watch what Paul is doing. What is he doing? He's forming churches. What are these churches? These churches are what Paul describes in Galatians 3.28, 1 Corinthians 12.31, uh, and Colossians 3.11. There is in Christ neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male and female, Scythian and barbarian. These things don't count anymore because they're all formed in Christ, and he is forming small groups, house churches of people whose identity is wrapped up in, in who Jesus is and living underneath him as their true emperor and that he has united all these people into a new kind of family, of brothers and sisters. The most common word that Paul uses for the people of God is not the word church. Is not. I just read this in a book the other day. The most common word Paul uses is body. That is so wrong. I don't know what, what Bible they're reading. The most common expression that Paul uses for the people of God is brothers and sisters, siblings. They are siblings in Christ. Is that Paul was out in the world forming families of siblings who lived under Jesus as their king. And I would encourage people to say, watch Paul form these churches and notice how everything he's on about is about how to live together in a way that brings glory to God because we're living loving, just, uh, forgiving, reconciling relationships with other people in the church. No longer are there strong and weak. The strong are to use their social status for the good of the weak, and the weak are to become empowered because those who have power are empowering them. There is no longer slave nor free. Philemon is to treat Onesimus as a brother. No longer a slave, but better than a slave, a brother. That's what Paul says. That's what Paul's doing in the world. Uh, and that right there is the mission of God in the world to form those kinds of communities. Wow. That's amazing. Um, Scott, as always, our time with you has been provocative and challenging and so enlightening and illuminating for those who are interested in finding out more. I mean, your work over the years, long before either Isaac or I met you, um, ha has, had been and continues to be so incredibly influential for us personally as local church pastors and for so many people that we know. So for those who are interested, you've written a bunch and you um, books as well as uh, regularly posting on your blog and you've got a podcast as well. What are some ways people can connect with you um, online and, and get some access to your work? Well, I, I have a blog called The Jesus Creed and I have a, a Twitter feed that I update with connections back to the blog, a little bit on Facebook. My name is Scott McKnight. You can find it there. And uh, I'm routinely writing new books. And um, I, in light of what we were talking about today, I'd say my book, The King Jesus Gospel, uh, also Kingdom Conspiracy, and then also A Fellowship of Differences, which I, uh, I was bringing up there at the end. Yeah, it's fantastic. Okay. Scott, thanks again so much Thank for your you. time. Thank yeah. you for your work, and uh, it's been a privilege and an honor. Thank you. Wow, that was an amazing conversation with Scott McKnight. He's always provocative um, and inspiring. And more than anything else, uh, for me, whenever I, I hear Scott or read Scott's work, it just makes me more hungry. 
to dive into the story, into the scripture. And uh, like he said, ask the question, man, who is Jesus? What's he up to in the world? Yeah, a lot of a lot of things we can get into, but maybe just to summarize. And if you had trouble, I mean, there was a lot of things discussed, deep stuff. So if you have trouble, we're going to put a bunch of links where you can read up more, study up on these things. But essentially, for me, kind of the pillar of this conversation is that Jesus is king. He is Lord and he has a people. Um, and his people are a family, brothers and sisters in Christ, neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. And we're called to live under his rule. And that means we live differently in the world. And so when we get those things right, all of the other things that oftentimes get emphasized, it's not like you lose them. You don't lose personal salvation. You don't lose forgiveness of sins. You just put them in their right place in the grand story of scripture. There is a king, his name is Jesus. He has a people, the church, and they are called now here in the present to live in light of his rule. And when we do that, you get kingdom and church and good works all in their right place doing what they're supposed to. Yeah. You know, it strikes me at the end when he was talking there, the the sort of the detached desire for good works and the desire to feel meaningful and significant in our vocation. We actually achieve that when we live under the rule of King Jesus in, yeah. in a deep, rich, robust way. Because what he leads us into is not just good works, but like the best work mm-hmm. toward human flourishing. And, um, yeah, it's just a beautiful way to reconcile some of that, some of that tension. Um, again, you guys, this this podcast, we just want to say thank you. It's been overwhelming uh, the way you guys have listened and shared and supported. And we would just encourage you to continue doing that. If you enjoy the work uh, that we're doing, enjoy the guests and the conversations that we're diving into. One of the best ways that you can help us is to jump on iTunes, to rate the podcast, to even leave a little review, mm-hmm. just a quick little sentence. Spread the word, leave reviews. It helps big time. Yeah. Share, share it with your friends. And as always, we would love to hear from you. If you've got ideas for the podcast, ideas for guests or topics or questions about things that we're discussing here, you can always reach us. We would love to hear from you. Um, Our email is podcast at regenerationproject.org. You can also find us all over, you know, the internet, social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. Um, And then, of course, everything is on our website as well, regenerationproject.org. And uh, we also want to thank Western Seminary for their support of the podcast. Um, Thank you guys again so much for listening. We've got great episodes ahead. And, uh, yeah, we'll talk to you all very soon.